Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Emily Michelson, who is Senior Lecturer in History at the University of St. Andrews. And we'll be discussing her brand new book, which is called Catholic Spectacle and Rome's Jews, Early Modern Conversion and Resistance, which is about what the title says. And it's also about uh, a lot about preaching, uh, Christian preaching to Jews in Rome. So thank you, Dr. Michelson, for joining me. Thank you. I'm really, really pleased to be here. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Right. So as you said, I'm a historian at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And as you can hear, I'm not originally from Scotland. I'm from Brookline, Massachusetts. And I moved to Scotland for the job that I have now. Uh, As a historian, I study the history and culture of religion in Italy, from about 1450 to about 1750, uh, so the Reformation period. And I'm really most interested in how religious cultures develop, religious societies develop, how they interact with each other, and how they are changed by their interactions with other religious groups. So essentially, how religious groups are influenced by by contact with and or their own ideas about other religions and what happens when you put them together. And that's basically what's going on in this book in a detailed way that I'll explain in a minute. Okay, so this is, this is like you said, when two religions come into contact, but this is something interesting. Uh, Christians preaching to Jews. So for, first of all, just in general, we'll, we'll talk about the topic in depth, but how did you get into this topic? Was that something, like you said, you were just in general interested in religions being in contact or something more specific here? Yeah, so in this case, it was very specific. And I should probably explain that um, I come from a very strongly affiliated Jewish background, and people always expected me to study Jewish history, and I was really resistant. I always said, it's the last thing I'm going to do. What I've always been interested in is sort of majority religious cultures. And particularly, I became interested in the history of Catholicism. I like to joke that I don't study Judaism, and instead, I study another religion that has antiquity and ritual and festivals and food rules and a calendar and guilt. Um, so, um, so that happened and I became a scholar of early modern Catholicism, but I was always interested in these moments of interaction between religious groups. I should also say here that I then wrote my first book on Catholic preachers during the Protestant Reformation because I was really struck by the drama of their situation, right? Their church is breaking up all around them. Their own leadership is in crisis. Uh, Their congregants were asking questions that they thought were dangerous, damaging questions. And yet every week they still had to show up and give a sermon and try to navigate all that difficulty. So I wrote a book about that. And in the course of writing that book, I came across this one volume of 16th century printed Catholic sermons given to Jews. And I learned that these sermons took place regularly in Rome, that it was a standard public event. Um, and I was determined not to, not to write about it, like not to be trapped into doing what everyone had always expected me to do. I didn't want to be defined as a scholar of Judaism, and that wasn't even my primary training. I remember that the first couple of the first time I read that volume, I made myself sit on my hands so that I wouldn't take notes and put it into the book that I was writing. Um, But slowly I read more and more and the idea grew on me uh, as I read more sources. And eventually I realized two important things. One is that these sermons had a really unique place in the Catholic world. 
and that they mattered a lot in the Catholic world. And secondly, that I was well-placed to write a book about those sermons. I could understand the history and the material on both sides. I'd written a book on Catholic preaching and I had a strong Jewish background. Uh, So on both sides also, when I didn't understand, I knew what people to ask and I felt that I could tell the story well. Um, And so it became a very personal book to me. And that's how, that's how this book happened. And then the last thing, which I know we'll talk more about is that I found a huge amount of material that nobody had really read before. Uh, and that was incredibly exciting. Yeah, we'll get to that later on. That's very yeah. fascinating. Some fascinating stuff uh, in manuscript that you found that's discussed at length in the book. Yeah. So I guess we'll start off over here. Let's, let's start off with, this, with these sermons. Like the, what are they? And just in, in general terms, the history of these sermons. I don't know if you want to start off telling listeners what they are, or we should start off when they start, the history of these sermons, when and how they begin. You can. Okay, so let's start with when and how they begin. And to understand that, you have to understand a little bit about the Jewish community of Rome, because it is unique in Europe, because it is the oldest continuous, it is the oldest Jewish community in Europe, and it's also the oldest continuous community, right? Descendants of Roman Jews from 2,000 years ago are still in Rome today. And it's also at the same time, the the seat, the center of Catholicism, it's where the papacy is. So Rome is unique because unique, because historically and symbolically Judaism and Roman Catholicism are equally matched. Um, They have equal claims to antiquity. They're equally rooted in the space. And that makes Jews an especially powerful kind of resonant antagonist for the Catholic church because they're right there um, and they've been there forever. On top of that, you have um, the recent history of the Spanish expulsions and Portuguese expulsions. And that means that lots and lots of Jews have just come to Rome and the community is suddenly much larger than it was before. And on top of that, you have sort of the drama of the 16th century. You have um, the Protestant Reformation. You have Catholic renewal. um, And you have this drive in Rome to turn the city into a model of Catholic holiness, to make it kind of this public perfect demonstration that the Catholic Church has survived the Reformation and that it is growing in strength and piety. So it becomes a sort of a theater city. And uh, in fact, that's what Kenneth Stowe calls it. And I know he was on your podcast. He calls it a theater of acculturation. Um, And that puts a lot of pressure on the Jewish community because they bear a lot of symbolic weight and that weight is only growing. Uh, So Rome has a ghetto that's founded in this period. It's not the first ghetto, but it's a very early ghetto. And unlike the Venetian ghetto, it's not hidden out of sight. It's right in the middle of town. It kind of tears the city apart in a way. You have violent acts like the Talmud burning. And then you also have these sermons, right? The And that's what really the book is about. The establishment of mandatory conversion sermons to Jews that took place every week and they took place in public and they took place for hundreds of years. And not a lot has been written about them until now. Um, and that's that's the topic at the heart of this book. Okay, so these sermons, so yeah. you, this is when they begin. So what, I know this is like a very general question. This is probably, yeah. this is really what the book is about. What are these sermons? What does that mean? There's a conversionary sermon to Jews. Okay. So where should I start? I guess let's start with time. So these sermons take place every week. 
they take place on Shabbat afternoon, which I think is a violation in and of itself in many ways. Um, and they take place in the oratory of the confraternity of Trinita de Pellegrini. Uh, you don't need to remember all of that, but what it means is they take place in a Christian setting outside of the ghetto. And, and um, two things about that setting. One is it's not a church because Jews are not allowed to enter churches. Uh, Christians don't allow Jews to enter churches. So they put it in a Christian, like a chapel that's not been consecrated to the same level. Um, and it's also a building that belongs to this very new, wealthy, prestigious organization. And when we look at the location of the sermons, that tells us that this Catholics really saw this as a prestigious event. Um, they saw it as a sign of their own piety and something that they were going to like make into a big deal. They were really going to get behind this. Um, and I think maybe I should give you a little bit more background about what's going on in Catholicism at this point um, to say why this is necessary. So I said that there's a Protestant Reformation. Um, and obviously that's a huge blow to a church that had been unified in the Western world, um, but they kind of bounce back. The sort of Catholicism bounces back, the papacy gets stronger and stronger, um, and they really want to show, and the church undergoes a lot of renewal and strengthening, and they revisit their policies about lots of things. And that is part of why they want to make the city of Rome into like, a, as I said, sort of a living model of holiness. And the other thing that happens in this period is that they start to send missions all over the world. So to North America and Canada, to South America, to India, to China and Japan. This is the moment when Catholicism becomes, as my colleague says, the world's first global religion. It's present on all the continents. And there's this really active effort to convert the world. And they see this as recompense for the fact that Europe is no longer holy Catholic. And within that is this idea that if you can convert the whole world, you should also be able to convert your oldest antagonist, right? That's at the heart of everything that they're doing. And that's why they want to sort of launch this public display that they are trying to convert the Jews. So before we get more to the preaching, I just want to jump in. So by the Reformation, just to clarify for the listeners, yeah. you're talking about Martin Luther, and then this yeah. is the Counter-Reformation. I don't know if you want to explain a little bit more. Listeners may not be familiar just with general history. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the beginning of the 16th century, um, there's a priest called Martin Luther who comes and tells the Pope that, um, I'm trying to simplify a lot here, uh, really in trying to do it as clearly as I can. Uh, basically, there's a schism in the church and parts of Europe form a new denomination of Christianity that's called Protestantism, that's led by Martin Luther and John Calvin and a couple of other people. And the previous church starts to be known only as the Roman Catholic Church. And there are horrific wars about this in Europe. Um, but basically, in 1500, you have a united Christianity in Europe. And by 1600, you have um, wars and division and many, many parts of Europe that are now Protestant and really hate Catholics and don't understand why they should still exist because clearly they are a religion of the past. Um, they got it wrong. And now this new church has come and got it right. So you have wars about this and the Catholic church uh, is trying to come back from that 
And they do that in part by going overseas, sending missions overseas, and by trying to prove how strong they are. And they are largely successful. And so that, that's why today there are many denominations of Christianity in the Western world. Gotcha, right. The book is at the counter information. So yeah. there comes along these conversionary preaching that decide yeah. to so we'll get are, back to this. Yeah. So what are what are these sermons? What are these? What happens? What is said in these? What's going on over here in Rome at uh, this time period? Okay. So um let's uh, let me describe it to you. So on Saturday afternoons, there's a set quota of Jews. It says like 250, but we know the numbers aren't always exactly that. They have to leave the ghetto. They have to walk in a group to this oratory and they have to sit there in the middle of the room. Um, and they're surrounded by other people who are watching them as they listen to the sermon. And then there are, then there's a preacher who gets up and speaks to them. Um, it's a little complicated to document. There are supposed to be two preachers. One is a Catholic-born preacher, and the other is a Jewish preacher who has converted to Catholicism. We don't have records that this always happened. We have records of sometimes one kind of preacher, sometimes the other kind of preacher. But he stands up there. Let's assume it's the preacher who was born Catholic. He stands up there and he preaches to them and they are about why Christianity is right, why Catholicism is right, and why Judaism is wrong. Um, and this goes on for a couple of hours every week for many years, for many hundreds of years, in fact. Um, this is done by law. There's a papal bull that's like a papal proclamation from the Pope that mandates what the preacher is supposed to say and how often. What that says, what that document says, is that the preacher should argue out of Tanakh. He's, what he should specifically do is take the, what I said it was Shabbat afternoon, he's supposed to take the Parsha and refute the Parsha. He's supposed to say, you know, your rabbi said this about this Parsha, and here's why they were wrong, because I know these sources as well as you do. Um, and here's how you should be reading those sources. And if you read them my way, they will demonstrate to you that Christianity is right, that Catholicism is right. At the same time, according to the papal legislation, he's also supposed to tell the Jews how awful they are. He should focus on Jewish depravity and error, is what it says. Um, but he shouldn't do so in a mean way. He should do so with charity and restraint. And this is like... I mean, this is kind of a ridiculous brief to follow, right? Tell them they're wrong, but tell them nicely while also telling them that everything that they've ever studied, that they're doing it wrong. Like, so people always argue about what exactly, who exactly is doing that right and where, where are the lines and who's crossed them. The sermons themselves are very theological. I always say, if you want to convert somebody to something, if you want to persuade them of something, you want to flatter them. You want to tell them how great they are. You want to tell them how much they're going to enjoy this thing that you're trying to get them to do, how much better their life is going to be. These sermons do absolutely none of that. They don't address the Jewish audience as if they are living people at all. They address them as if they are the Jews of antiquity. You see these sermons and they say, you people, you have been stubborn now for 1,500 years. 
And it's like, no, the people in that room are not, they have not been alive for 1500 years. It's not the same people. But what what's happening, I think, is that they're seeing this Jewish audience as symbols, right? They're bringing in real Jews to play imaginary Jews, is how I phrase it. Um, and in terms of the sermons themselves, mostly they talk about Christian beliefs. So they argue that this is why you should believe in the Trinity. Um, this is why you should believe in um, the miraculous virginity of Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is why uh, you should believe that the Mashiach has already come. And like basically core Christian beliefs. There are quite a lot of sermons on these topics. Um, and then there are, and yeah. Um, there's also, so a lot of the sermons are just repeating these ideas. And these are not new ideas in Catholicism. These have been happening since the Middle Ages. They're the same ideas that were being offered in the Barcelona disputations, um, same ideas that Nachmanides was debating. Um, and they're, they're coming up again, only this time they're coming up in this public, public setting and they're coming up in this weekly ritual that everybody can, can go and watch. Um, do you have time for another bit for this answer? Go ahead. Yeah. There's also, okay, so there's also a belief that gets stronger in this period, the sort of 16th century period. Um, that's a, I would say it's a more nasty belief, um, which is the, the, the Christian conviction that if you read the Torah properly, and if you study, if you study Gemara properly, you will see that it actually upholds all the truths of Christianity. Um, and also they believed that the rabbis in the Gemara knew this and deliberately hid it from everybody else. And that they were deceitful towards a population because they they wanted to hide the truth from them and that they, the preachers, know how to read these same sources correctly. So they do use a lot of rabbinic sources. They use a lot of biblical verses, the same ones that are often used in debates between Judaism and Christianity. And they tell this Jewish audience, um, we understand Judaism better than you do. Your rabbis have been deceiving you, but we will tell you the truth of how to read these texts. So a couple of things to ask yeah. to follow up on there. Obviously, there's a lot that yeah. you said. I'll make my next answer shorter. No, it's fine. But one of the things is that really it begs the question. Now you were saying how they're they're kind of using these, they're talking like you Jews in the past 1500 years is using these yeah. abstract terms. It begs the question, were they really trying to actually convert them? Or was this kind of for themselves or a polemical device that they were trying yeah. to do more than actually they thought that the Jews were going to walk out and convert? Right. So that is the question at the heart of the book is what are these sermons saying they're doing and what are they actually doing? And that also gets back to my earlier answer that like, if you really want to convert people, you're nice to them. And we know this because they also try to convert Protestants at the same time on a much lower scale. And they're super nice to them. Right. They like they make friends with them. They have little study groups together. Or they like um they have a term for it that I'm blanking on right now. That's, but it's like, we're going to treat them with sweetness, right? But this is not about that. This is really about, um, 
Well, I think it's about a number of things at once, and that's what makes it so such a rich and symbolic thing to study. It has many layers of significance. One is they're trying to demonstrate how devout they are, how pious they are. They're trying to demonstrate that they've survived, and that, as I said earlier, and that they've triumphed, and that they are so strong that they can even now attend to this long-standing task of converting the Jews. And they also are trying to show that they want to convert by persuasion. I think a lot of your listeners will know uh, what happened in Spain at the end of the 15th century when the Jews of Spain and then Portugal were faced with a choice, you either convert or you leave now. And they also saw that that did not go so well for Spain, that it led to a lot of anxiety in Spain and a lot of difficulty, and they didn't want to do the same thing. So they said, okay, we also want to convert the Jews because we're like even more Catholic than the Spanish, but we want to do it by persuasion. So they kind of launched this whole spectacle to say, look, what we're doing, it's persuasion. In point of fact, a lot of violence goes on underneath the surface. Um, there's a lot of violent talk. There's a lot of violent action. There are um, babies who are offered before they're born or fetuses that are offered before they're born. Um, there are people who are offered in revenge. They're, they're like, there's some horrific stories. But if you have the public sermons, then when somebody converts, you can always claim that they converted because of the sermons. You can always say, no, this was intellectual. It was theological. It was a rational decision. We know like there have been many, many studies of conversion in this period. It's a hot topic in this period. Um, and we know that people convert for all sorts of practical reasons, right? To get out of debt or because they've fallen for somebody or because they're running away from somebody. Um, people rarely convert just for intellectual reasons. They also need a lifestyle reason. But these sermons kind of provide cover for all of that. They make it always look like it's a really good thing that people converted for the highest reasons. And they can claim that because they can say, oh, we have these sermons. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Now, now these sermons, I, you said earlier, they're mandatory. I just want to follow yeah. up on that. Yeah. Who, what, was it mandatory for all the Jews? And was this men, women, children? Who was attending these sermons? So they're, they're supposed to bring 250 Jews. Um, the, populate, the Jewish population at this point is about 3,000 people, which is about 3% of the city's population. 250 Jews, kind of two-thirds men, one-third women, 18 and up. And in the archives, you can see, and I have seen these lists, these like rosters, these rota lists, where, because there are five shoals in Rome, and they take it in turns, who's going to send the people? Um, and there is a, when they get there, and it's not like they, they'd like to negotiate the numbers. So sometimes they agree to a smaller number. Um, and I, they also negotiated up the age that used to be 12, and then they made it 18. Um, and that's an example of Jewish resistance, which we will get back to. Um, but they also, like, they definitely check that the numbers are being fulfilled. So there's a guard at the door. Uh, he's often a convert because the convert will know all the faces and he'll know the whole community. And he's got a list and he checks off. This person is supposed to come. Are they here? Is this person here? You're wait, you're not on the list. Why are you here? And if you miss your turn or if you send somebody else to take your place, then you are fined. 
and the fines go towards the House of Catechumens. The fines go to support um, new converts to Catholicism from Judaism. Um, and now I've forgotten what your question was. No, about how many, how many, how many people yeah. went? It was men and women. So you're, that's yeah, you're... yeah. So it's a sizable crowd. Okay, so um, one other thing that that you you mentioned it was Shabbos afternoon. You talk about this in the book. Really interesting. Now, why it was in the afternoon as opposed to the morning, and why they pick Shabbos? You emphasize why kind of they pick this time in particular. I think they know it's because no one has the excuse that they can't come because they have to work, right? They know that, like they, they like they know that the entire population is free, and. So they're doing it very deliberately. And they're often advised by converts. Um, if you convert to Catholicism, very often you have to spend the rest of your life proving that you really meant it. And the way you prove you really meant it is by saying, basically, I will help you convert other people. I will bring you other people. I will preach to them. I will explain the Gemara to you. I will help you study these sources. Um, so often the most antagonistic people in this whole exchange are, are Jews who have already converted. So another key point from these sermons, and this is something that you kind of alluded to earlier, you're saying there's 250 Jews, but it wasn't only them that were there. And it's in the title, Catholic spectacle and Rome. Yes. So there is a spectacle. We're in Rome. Rome today is still a big tourist attraction. And it was yeah. then the, the, mm -hmm. the, the Pope was, was there, like you said, the Vatican is there. So this is kind of a spectacle. There are other people coming. So I guess kind of describe again a little bit what, what the others besides the Jews are there and why are they coming? What's what's going on? Yeah, so this is the beginning of an era of travel. Um, it's a it, it's like the whole sort of travel industry is just taking off in the 16th and 17th centuries, and lots and lots of people are coming to Rome uh, from Northern Europe. And one of the things that I studied in this book is Protestants who are you know, maybe their grandparents or their great grandparents were Catholic, but they've been raised Protestant, and they're coming to Rome, um, and you know, they always been like to them, the whole thing is exotic. Catholics are exotic, but Jews are also exotic because in many parts of Northern Europe, Jews have been expelled already. So if they're coming from England, as a lot of them are, there aren't a lot of Jews to see in England. Um, same if they're coming from France and they come to Italy and all of a sudden, one of the great wonders that they can witness is communities of Jews. And when they get to Rome, they can see communities of Jews in public being preached at. And a lot of these, a lot of these travelers left diaries and memoirs, and they write about this spectacle in the same way that they write about the other novelties of Rome. I went to the Colosseum, I went to the Church of St. John Lateran, I went to see the Jews being preached at. So that's one audience. And another audience is local Romans and Catholic citizens. Um, because there is a tradition in Rome of going to hear lots of sermons, as particularly at certain times of the year when you might go every day to hear a sermon. And we have records that they would say, you know, they would write down, okay, this day I went to see, hear a sermon in St. Peter's at the, at the Vatican, and this day I went to this church, and this day I went to this church where they preached to the Jews, or this oratory where they preached to the Jews. So we know that these were not only meant to be public, but they really were public and that there's always a multi-layered audience. And the other cat, so we've got Jews, we've got Roman citizens, 
we've got foreigners. And the fourth category of audience is Jews who are in the process of or have just converted to Christianity. There's a special sort of dormitory school for them. And they are brought down as a group and they sit there um, and you know, they are also part of the spectacle because what the happens is their presence. If let's say you are a visitor to Rome and you want to see this phenomenon that you've heard of, of preaching to Jews, you see the Jews in the middle being preached at. And then right next to them, you see these benches of new Christians. The message you're going to draw is these sermons work, right? That's going to be your conclusion. You're going to sort of see the cause and then see the result. Um, or at least that's that's what the spectacle is in, intended to communicate. And the preacher knows this. He knows that he has to preach to all of these audiences at once. And that is another thing that makes these sermons so powerful is that he can be preaching to Christians while under the guise of preaching to Jews. And he can say things to Christians that he couldn't admit that they didn't already know. So this is an age when everybody is um, really anxious about religious affiliation and religious belonging because all of a sudden the Christian world is so fractured. And so it's an age when people really try hard to make people understand why they are the faith they are, right? It's not enough just to be born into it. You have to have an education. You have to understand how you're different from that guy up the road who believes the wrong thing where we believe the right thing. So Christian education is really important in this period. And if you pretend that you're, or if you have this cover that you're preaching to somebody who doesn't, isn't expected to know anything about Christianity, then you can actually teach the basics to people who should have known the basics already, but didn't. So the preacher has to balance all of these audiences and, um, and that makes them sort of especially potent, especially powerful and valuable in the Catholic world. Yeah, so we'll get to the preachers in, in a minute, and, and especially one of them, like they yes. mentioned earlier, that you discovered a lot about him. But one more thing about the sermons in general. So who is supporting these sermons, monetarily, organization? Who is behind these kind of these big spectacles, these events that were going on every week? So monetarily, a lot of it is the Jews, obviously not willingly, but they are compelled to pay for the benches um, that are set up and... Um, their, you know, their fines go to support this enterprise, but Catholic organizations also sponsor it. And what's really interesting is just how many different Catholic organizations want to support this enterprise. So you have all these new um, religious orders, so like brotherhoods, um, the Jesuits and various other ones, and they supply space or they supply preachers. Um, the building that houses it, that's another kind of brotherhood. Um, that supports it. You have wealthy noblemen and women who donate space or donate money. You have the papacy itself. There's a huge range of support. There's, there's this whole network of Catholic institutions that lend some support. And that shows that for them, it's a really promising and popular activity. Um, the financial part that the Jews have to do, like they don't care so much about it. They're, they're forced to pay that money. Uh, but in the Catholic world, this is like, this is going to be a surefire success. Everybody wants to say that they helped it happen. So one more thing before we get to the preachers yeah. is, was this unique, special to Rome? 
or was this going on elsewhere in Italy? Although I know we didn't discuss this, right? There's just mentioned listeners may be familiar from other episodes, right? There's the papal states now and the Italy, there's other kind of city states, republics. They're not exactly no country Italy till the 19th century, but is this going on elsewhere in Italy and otherwise, or is this mainly a unique to Rome phenomena? So it's supposed to go on um, all over Italy. The papal the papal legislation says it's supposed to happen every place where there are enough Jews to have a shul. In fact, it happens sometimes. It happens when the local ruler thinks it's useful. Uh, it doesn't really have, we have some sources from Venice that have happened sometimes in Venice. We have a couple of sources from Florence, one from Naples and from some smaller cities. But none of those cities are sort of, are carrying with them the weight of Christian tradition that Rome is. None of them can make it into this big symbol of the triumph of Catholicism in the way that Rome can. So it happens in Rome on a scale and with a regularity that doesn't take place elsewhere and in a public way that doesn't take place elsewhere. Right. Okay. So now let's get to the preachers. So there's a number of preachers and the main one is Gregorio. I'm not going to say the rest of his name because I'm going to butcher it. So I'm going <laughs> to say his, his name. His name and- is... Gregorio Boncompagni Corcos de Iscarinci. Um, I call him Boncompagni Corcos most of the time. Um, and wait, so what happens, let me just back up. At the beginning, everybody wants, this is like this exciting new venture. Lots of people want to take part in it. So lots of people who go on to do other things with their lives, give a couple of sermons to Jews, maybe for six months, maybe just once. Um, because it's like, it's just like a thing that helps them on their career. And it clearly is going to help them on their career. And then at a certain point, once it's clear that these sermons have lasting power, the papacy says, okay, we're going to give this to this one religious group called the Dominican Order, and they are going to do the preaching from now on. Um, And it stays with the Dominicans from the beginning of the 17th century all the way to the end of the sermons. And so at that point, that's a sign that the sermons have, like, they've been successful, right? They've become an institution. We've provided for their future. And so the preachers are always Dominicans, and some of them also published some of their sermons in a pamphlet form or as a treatise. Uh, So we kind of know the, the things, the sorts of things that they said. And then, and, you know, maybe they lasted for five years or 10 years. And sometimes they went on to better careers afterwards. And then we get to the middle of the 17th century, and there's this one guy, Boncompagni Corcos, who preaches every week for 39 years. He preaches from 1649 to 1688. And he left all of his sermons in manuscript, in 10 massive manuscript volumes that are now in the Vatican Library. I would not say that I discovered them because the people who discover them are the archivists and the librarians and the catalogers and the people who buy volumes. I will say that a couple of them had been looked at some a few times um, and some of them had not been looked at really at all as far as I could tell. Uh, but now I've looked at them and there are 39 years of weekly sermons to Jews in those volumes. And they're massive. They're um, uh, trying to describe they're they're very big they're very tall you can fit a lot of words on a page and they're very thick 
Yeah. Okay. So what's his background? Is there is a Jewish background there? And and then what did you find in the sermons? What are the content? What were you able to take out of seeing all these sermons for thirty nine years? Yeah. So um, he is the descendant of an illustrious Jewish family that converted in the middle of the 16th century. They were one of the wealthiest families in Rome and they became one of the wealthiest Jewish families and they became a very wealthy Catholic family. Um, So he is raised in an entirely Catholic environment. Um, We know that he's a scholar because we know that he oversees the library in the monastery where he lives. Um, And I think that he was given this position because he has a Jewish background and he has a scholarly mind um, and they needed a Dominican and he's a Dominican, um, but he doesn't come to this with a Jewish background. He clearly learned Hebrew and learned rabbinic sources as part of his Catholic education and his training to be a preacher. Yeah. 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 Um, what I found reading his sermons is, well, I found a lot. Um, so one of the interesting things about them is you're supposed, I said earlier, you're supposed to preach Parsha by Parsha. And I had not seen any sermons that actually did this because I'd only looked at sermons that were printed or sermons that had been reworked into other forms before they were printed. But in some of these volumes, you'll get, you know, sermon on Bereshit, next sermon on Bereshit, next sermon on Bereshit. Okay. Now a sermon on Noah, right. And you can sort of see the year unfolding. Um, and sometimes he'll say like, oh, right now I know that you are celebrating Sukkot and I'm going to preach on such and such. Like you can sort of see the interactions. Most of the sermons do exactly what he's expected to do. They preach on these theological topics like the Trinity. Um, They discuss rabbinic sources. They're kind of dry and boring. Uh, But every once in a while, he preaches on things that completely surprised me and uh, were not at all what the original papal legislation had said it was okay to preach on. So, for example, he preaches on uh, Protestants. Uh, He tries to demonstrate not only why Jews should convert to Christianity, but why they should convert to his kind of Christianity and why the other guys are wrong. And he also preaches on Islam. um, And he he has sermons where he's trying to figure out well, we know that we're right and they're wrong. So why do they still exist, right? Why have they survived if all of their ideas are wrong? And I have to say his sermons on Islam are based on very old stereotypes like his sermons on Jews and they're they're fairly antagonistic. They're fairly unpleasant to read. Um, he, he indulges in a lot of old stereotypes that Christians often said about Muslims. Um, and then he also preaches on new developments in Catholicism. So there are a bunch of saints who have been made saints only very recently, some missionaries, some holy women. Um, and he uses that opportunity to discuss why Catholicism is important, why sanctity is important, uh, what does it mean to be a saint? And then the other thing that he does is he talks about why sermons to Jews should continue going, he should, why they should exist, why Christians should Um, continue to attend them? What's the benefit? Why have a sermon as opposed to a medieval disputation? So he's really, he has this layer of self-reflection that I wasn't expecting, um, where he tries to kind of justify his whole life's work 
and um, tries to defend what he's been doing. And one of the reasons that I think he does this is that he's really unsure of what he's doing. There's a sort of touching moment at the beginning, like he finishes, he'll like finish a manuscript volume and then there'll be a blank page on the front and he'll write like, this is my collection of papers of sermons to the Jews for these years. And on one of them, he says, I have these collections of sermons. They are worthless. They are, they, they mean nothing. Um, I never converted any Jews. And if I did convert any of them, it certainly wasn't because of anything I said, right? If any of them did convert, it wasn't because of me. And he does this enough that I think he's genuine. I think he is actually like, he loves what he's doing. That's clear, but he's also not sure. Like he's still, he always needs to justify it to himself. Um, and he needs to, um, like you can kind of see him in that moment in all of his insecurities, even though like he's bombastic and he's learned and he writes and writes and writes and writes. And he clearly like, no one's kicked him out, right? Um, but at the same time, he he always stops and says, why am I doing this? Does it need to be this way? The other thing about him is that he's very well connected. There's this whole world of Christian scholarship of Hebrew sources that's based at various universities and, there, and the Vatican Library and all these places. Because Rome is having this sort of renaissance of scholarship at the same time. Hebrew is a big part of that. And he is in touch with a lot of the major Hebrew scholars. He's good friends with a lot of the major Catholic Hebrew scholars of the period. And a lot of his, some of his ideas go from his sermons to his notes to other people's books. And you can see the progression. Um, so a lot of his self-doubt really has um, a broader influence. A lot of his reasoning has a broader influence. And I should also have pointed out that the position of preacher to the Jews, once it becomes a fixed position, is very prestigious. It's a position that people want to have. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that you put, whatever else you might do in your life, you're going to put that on the title page. You're going to say, I, preacher to the Jews, also wrote this other book. I, preacher of the Jews, had this opinion about this case, right? So it's a prestigious position. And that, in, in Boncompagni's case, allows him to translate his ideas to his scholarly friends. And they take up some of those ideas and spread them. Fascinating. And this, yeah. obviously, listeners can read more about this in the book, which there'll be a link yeah. to purchase in the show's notes. So now, as you say, from him and from others, it sounds like it wasn't really that successful. So how were the Jews resisting this and how were they refuting these sermons? What was going on? This is something that you talk about in the book as well. Yes. Um, so I would say that, like, I've done two things in this book that are really new. People knew bits about these sermons, but I have two new things. One is these sermons by Bon Compagni in manuscript that people hadn't identified before. Um, and the other is the tradition of Jewish resistance. The people who had studied this at all kind of knew maybe three things. Um, they knew that the first preacher, the person who kind of got the sermons going, was a guy called Andrea de Monte. He's a convert from Judaism. He is extremely unpleasant and he is so unsuccessful that the Jews basically say, look, we will not listen to him. He has to go. And they kick him out. They, they, his superiors remove him from the pulpit and put in a nicer guy instead. 
So that's the first case that we have of resistance. And people also talk about the wax in the ears a lot. I haven't found any direct evidence of wax in the ears, but that's the one people always mention. And scholars also know that in the early 1700s, there's a rabbi who has written a bun- who wrote a couple of treatises saying, look, these sermons are going too far. Or it's really not a good idea to hit people with a stick during sermons if you want them to agree with you. Uh, so we know that and those things are printed and somewhat well known. But that was all people knew about the tradition of Jewish resistance or how Jews understood or reacted to these sermons. What I saw in Bon Compagni's manuscript is that it was completely standard to resist these sermons, to refute them uh, on a regular basis. And eventually I was able to put together a, a continuous history that shows that the Jewish population of Rome, in the ways that were available to them, intellectually or physically, actively or passively, always resisted these sermons. So, for example, there's a lot of legislation saying the Jews have to behave really well in sermons. They're not allowed to hum, they're not allowed to talk, they're not allowed to fall asleep. There's a guy walking up and down with that stick I mentioned to prod them if they're misbehaving. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Jews are really doing their best not to listen, right? That they are doing all of those misbehaving things because they don't want to be there and they don't want to look like they want to be there and they don't want to take any of it in. And then in the manuscripts, what we see is this guy, Bon Compagni, as he reflects on his sermons, and sometimes he writes them down afterwards and he has a little note about what happened. He'll say, I started to give this sermon, but the Jews objected too much. So I wrote a different sermon. Um, And in fact, there's one, he gives a sermon on this former Pope who has become a saint. Um, And there's a note in the margins that says, I'm trying to remember exactly what it says. um, The Jews said that this was vain and intolerable and two other adjectives. And then he writes a next then his next sermon is on the same topic to show that they are not vain and they are not intolerable. So um, you can see not only that Jews are resisting the sermons, but that by resisting, they are changing the sermons that are given. They are affecting what is preached to them uh, because they're putting up such a fuss. And then my favorite, favorite one of all is um, there's a sermon volume where the manuscript volume where the the writing of the sermon ends halfway down the page and it's in very neat handwriting. And then underneath it is this almost illegible scrawl of a very old man. And it says, this was the first sermon ever done by me, Gregorio Boncompagni Corcos. Um, It was a bad sermon. It was easy for the Jews to refute this one. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about his career a little bit. And it's, I've consulted with a number of scholars. None of us can quite make out all the words, but he said that he says, look, I would still do this all again. I think Um, I would only preach to Jews, not Christians. But right in that moment, you see that he's been facing resistance for his entire career. And he's not, I've read his sermons. They're not especially nasty. They're dry and they're theological. um, And occasionally maybe, they go a little bit too close to the nerve, but they're not mean and nasty sermons. 
Other preachers write mean and nasty sermons. I know the difference. These are not them. And yet the Jews are always, at least intellectually, getting somebody to go up and say, no, you know what? You interpret it. You're reinterpreting our interpretation. We're going to reinterpret your reinterpretation. So we know that that happened continuously. And we also know that the Jews legislated against letting 12-year-olds in the sermons. We know they moved the age to 18. They reduced the number of women. They objected to having to go so far. And eventually, at the end of this whole phenomenon of sermons, they start moving the churches closer and closer to the ghetto because they can't get people to go anymore unless they make it easier and easier for them. Wow, really fascinating. When, when does this end, these sermons? So. It doesn't really end until the middle of the 19th century, until 1847. There's a bit of a pause around Napoleon, and then in comes Leo X in 1823, and he's like, no, I'm going to go start up all these things again, and he tries. Um, but it doesn't really end till the middle of the 19th century. And by then, the papal states are really out of step with the rest of Europe. They've had revolutions, they've had emancipations, they've opened up their ghettos, and here's Rome, still making the Jews listen to a sermon about how wrong they are every single week. It's, it's not a good look by then. Uh, if you've read, and I'm sure that many of your listeners will have read The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara, this beautiful book about a forced baptism in the middle of the 19th century, he lays out really clearly how Rome's treatment of its Jews makes it really obviously look out of step with the rest of Europe. Um, and that that is part of what leads to its downfall later in the century. Yeah, that's by uh, David Kurtzer. And I, and I think um, you mentioned Kenneth Stowe earlier. I have a podcast episode with him on about Anna and Tranquilo, the diary. He makes this point also very clearly how completely out of touch they were with the rest of the world and just backwards yeah. um, society, for, for lack of a better term at this time. So there are actually two stories. I don't know if you want to discuss them that we didn't get to. Yeah. That we didn't mention. You have a story here. Well, the first one is your introduction is called Introduction with Pig. And yes. there's a story here by a Levaya, by a funeral of a, of a rabbi in Rome. That's yes. number one. And yes. the other story is a, a very sad story of conversion. You talk about Edgardo Mortara, similar yes. with Prospero di Tullio Sarampino. So you yes. have kind yes. of two stories if you want to mention. They're, they're very yeah. sad stories. Yeah, they're, they're both. So about the sad stories, I like to say this is a book where nobody wins right? Nobody gets what they wanted. The Jews don't convert, so the Christians aren't happy, but the Jews have to go to sermons, so they're not happy. Nobody nobody comes out of this having succeeded. Um, and so the stories that I found, they're really compelling, but they're not happy stories. Um, the pig story was so good, I had to start the book with it. It's so compelling that I had to start the book with it, but it's horrific. And it is the, um, it's the funeral of the chief rabbi of Rome in the mid-17th century, um, and so there's a Leviah, there's a funeral procession for him because they have to go out of the ghetto and across the city to get to the Jewish cemetery. And there's this guy who is known as a bit of a scholar and as a polemicist, meaning he's a guy who writes angry pamphlets about why the Jews are wrong. And he uses that funeral to kind of make the jump from speech to action, from nasty speech to nasty actions. Um, and he builds a coffin and he puts a live pig in it and he gets a bunch of boys to go with him. And wherever the Jewish funeral procession goes, he walks right alongside them and he writes this song 
Um, and it's a song about how evil the rabbi is, how black his soul is, how his soul has gone into the pig. It's really like, it's incredibly offensive. Um, and they open, like every time the funeral stops, they open, they, they stop too, and they open the box and out comes this live pig's head. Um, and there it is. Like, it's, it's awful. I mean, it's compelling, it's dramatic, but it's not, it's, it's awful. Um, and the thing that also struck me about it is that I found this, found, I saw this in a manuscript volume that was next to all the sermons. Um, and it was written up by this very learned professor of Hebrew at one of Rome's scholarly institutions. Um, and he takes so much care. He tells the whole story. He writes the whole poem. Um, he transliterates the poem and he translates it because it's in Judaica Romanesco, which is the language that Jews of Rome spoke. Um, and so he has these little like keys. He translates all the Hebrew words in it into Italian words for his readers. So what I learned from that story is that violent actions and the kind of elite world of scholarship were not two separate worlds, right? This is a guy, the guy who wrote down the poem and described it is a scholar, but he's endorsing this act that is, I would say, right on the border between speech and violence, right? Nobody's actually physically harmed, but it's nonetheless a violent act because of the speech and the way it's staged. Um, so uh, that story was so good that I had to start the book with it. And I had to say introduction with pigs so that people would read the introduction and know that it had more than just a standard introduction. Um, there's also, there's another scholar, Martina Mampieri, who has worked extensively on the linguistic aspects of that poem um, and um, unpacked all of that. So I can recommend her article to you as well. And the other story, is really one of the stories that I found hardest to read. Um, it reads like a like a Shakespearean tragedy of some kind, like a play. Um, and it's the story of this Jewish man, Tulio di Prospero Serampino, um, who is in conversation with a priest, just a kind of some spontaneous conversation. And the priest says to him, would you like to offer one of your children for conversion? And the guy says, no. And he says, really? No. Really, really? No. Well, he'd have such a nice life. He'd be so, um, you know, your child would be so well taken care of. And the guy, the priest keeps like needling him and needling him and he won't stop. And, and then he says, well, what about, what about if the Pope baptized him? Would you offer him then? And this father is so frustrated that he says, you know what? Sure. If the Pope baptized him, then I would. And of course he doesn't mean it. It's really clear that he's just trying to get the other guy to shut up. But the priest, the other guy, immediately springs into action. He, they're standing in front of a crowd. He turns around. He says, you all saw this. He goes to the conversionary preacher, uh, which tells you how important the preacher is. He goes to the guy who runs the house of catechumens. They have a cardinal who's a very high church official who is like their patron they go to them. Um, and all of the Jews are furious about this. They are up all night. They are shouting and screaming and rebelling and saying, no, you cannot do this. It was not a real oath. It's not binding. You cannot take this child. You have no justification. Um, and 
It goes on for ages. They review the case. They make the same decision. It, it goes up to the Pope and the Pope says, you know what? This sounds lovely. I'll baptize the child. And then in the middle of the night, after the Pope has said this, they raid the ghetto. They were only ever talking about one child, but they take two children. Um, they take a little boy and they take a baby girl. For this, these the two children, two of the children of this man, Tulio. And they bring them to the house of catechumens and they treat them very, very nicely. They give the boy his own bed. He's probably never slept in a whole bed by himself before. I'm sure they give him like sweets and things. He's, he's well-treated and they decide they're not quite sure of his age. So they decide that he's about seven. Um, and that's a crucial point because seven is the age of reason as they consider it. So they decide he's old enough to make his own decisions. Meanwhile, the Jews are launching a resistance effort and um, it's not, it's not going anywhere. And they eventually, so the, the Catholics, including the preacher and the priest and the director of the house of, of the house of catechumens, they decide, okay, the baby counts as fulfillment of the father's oath and the boy, he's seven, that's his own volition, right? That was his own decision. And they baptize them. They get the Pope to baptize them. They dress them up in the richest robes, gold robes. They put them on white horses um, and they parade them through the city. They rename them. Obviously, you get a Christian name when you're baptized and they name both of them after the Pope. The Pope is Pope Urban and they name them Urbanus Urbanius and Anna Urbania and they parade them through the ghetto. And it's that last bit that I find most heartbreaking of all of this is they see it as an unmitigated triumph, but they're also like Dafka bringing them through the ghetto. And it's very clear that there was never any Jewish consent to this and that there was continuous resistance. Um, and you see in that moment, just how far apart the two sides are, that they can see that one side can see this as the triumph of piety and the triumph of might and the other side sees it as a complete tragedy. Yeah. And the story is at the, at the beginning of chapter one, just a yeah. really heartbreaking uh, story. Yeah. And what it shows us, cause I now have to bring it back to my preachers um, is it shows us how the preacher to the Jew, this position, this fixed position of predicatore de Hebrei, preacher to the Jews, like is He's locked into all of these networks. He's central to all of the networks of conversion and scholarship and patronage that kind of uh, bring to life the whole city of Rome and all of its conversionary efforts. He's right in there. He's not separate. He's not on some higher intellectual plane. Um, and they also show us just like just how deep is this drive for conversion. That's what this story also, also shows us. So the preacher is important and it's part of this big, desperate, conversionary fervor that Catholics have at this moment. Right, right. So like you're saying, it's uh, heartbreaking. It's just a sad story. And uh, the whole book is kind of like that. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, fascinating. Yeah. There's a, like we discussed. Right. Sad but compelling is what I'm going for here. Yes, absolutely. Sad, but compelling, really compelling. And a lot of really interesting, yeah. like, you know, a lot of, really new manuscript material like you have is really very interesting so there'll be a link in in the show's notes mm -hmm. university press i don't remember if i said that so there will be a link to purchase in the show's notes and uh just just finally are you what are you working on now uh so it's very early days um I'll, i think that i should only say that i am determined yet again not to write another book about sermons 
but I am interested, again, I think I will always be interested in interfaith encounter and how religions are shaped by each other. Um, so I'm trying to find other dynamics that shape it besides preaching. So I'm interested in space and movement and objects um, as a way of getting away from preaching, but still asking the same questions and seeing what comes to light. Okay. So I guess we will stay tuned. And uh, yeah. thank you very much for coming for coming on thank to discuss. Thank you so much. And thank you also to the listeners.